We're going to begin this week a series on the letter to the Philippians. Now it says Paul's letter, of course, we just read on and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Philippians, perhaps more than any other epistle, demonstrates the connection between the authors and the recipients of the New Testament. Again, if you think about the, the concept of the formation of the New Testament, not just sort of dropping out of heaven, fully formed, but a collection of letters, and in both to congregations and some to individuals. And Philippians is a great example of this connection between somebody who had been there previously, who is writing in the letter about their faith, about things that are going on in their lives, about things that they know about because of this shared connection. And ultimately, the beginning of this is an emotional connection. Philippians 1, 1 through 5. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Right off the bat, we see a couple of things. Number one, Paul's praying often for the Philippians. He is apart from them. We'll talk a little bit about the context as we go on in this sermon, but he's thinking about them often, praying for them, not just for their continual faith, but he's thankful for them, thankful for their, their commitment, their partnership in the gospel with him. As we think about the connection here, the setting in Acts chapter 16, we'll spend a lot of time in Acts 16 this morning, conditions of Paul's relationship with the Philippians. Acts 16, 11 through 12, so setting sail from Troas. Uh, this is uh, not just Paul, but he's got sort of a, an entourage, a collection of people. There are a variety of people that are with him on this journey. You can see up here, how many of you did? Part of this red line, this is his missionary journey as he's going on this trip. Philippi is a stop. It is one of many, and yet it does not diminish because it is one of many stops on his trip. It does not diminish the connection that he feels. As we said previously, the worship that we are giving to God in a collection here is not just with the people here, it is with the people across the globe today worshiping our Father. As we see on the map up there, he's been to been to Troas, and he's been to Neapolis, and then he's going to continue on to Thessalonica, Berea, as he's traveling from place to place, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Santa Cruz, and following days to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now, it's important to note, as we think about the, the, the flow of the narrative in Acts, this is we're conceptualizing travel as we travel. If I wanted to go to Philippi, I could do that. It would be uh, maybe less than a day, even though it's super far. Right? I could drive to an airport, I got on a plane, and fly over there. Maybe I have to take some separate stops. Then I have to get on a bus or another car to get over there. But I probably could accomplish that today. Paul is walking. Now, not all the time. He's on boats, I guess, some of the time. But this group of people that he's with, they're traveling from place to place. And we read the Acts, and they go to this place, they go to that place. There's some time taking place here. And specifically, Luke is, is making note to call out, they stop in Philippi for a while. And hang out. They're doing stuff. What are they doing in Philippi while they're there? Well, 
we begin with verse uh, 13 to 15, the conversion of Lydia. I'm not going to read the whole thing in Acts 16. We're going to read selected things. If you want to know more, you should definitely read Acts 16 uh, during the week on your own. Acts 16, 15, after Lydia was baptized and her household as well, she urged to say, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Then she prevailed upon us. Come be with me. One of the things that we're going to emphasize as we go through Acts chapter 16 is the desire for connection. The desire for relationship that Paul, he is with them, and maybe it's not just Paul, but Paul is sort of the focus of the narrative. They're gathered together, teaching these, these people at the place of prayer, but it's not like they teach them, they baptize them, they move on. They teach them, they baptize them, and then there's fellowship, connection. They stay for a while. Things continue, verse 16 through 24, eventually Paul and Silas, they end up thrown in jail. Acts 16, 17 through 18, there's this woman that has some sort of spirit of divination. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim you the way of salvation. And she kept doing it for many days. All having become greatly annoyed. I, I just would love to see, as this woman's following them around for many days, right? They're, they're teaching, they're, they're preaching, they're talking to people, they're, they're fellowshipping with other Christians, and as they're wandering around in the town, it's not that what this person is saying is untrue. Right? This person is saying correct things. They are servants of the Most High. They proclaim the way of salvation. Why would Paul become annoyed? Because the focus is turning off of God and onto this woman who has this spirit of divination who had been presumably in the town doing all sorts of things and gathering a reputation for herself. And Paul does not want the focus to be on this person, but this focus to be on Jesus Christ. So he says turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. I would love to see Paul annoyed. There's a couple of times he got annoyed and really sort of was, was aggravated with people, and typically it was because they were either preventing or distorting or blocking the preaching of some sort. Remember the proconsul who there's this guy who he's trying to teach and this other guy is like, I, he's preventing him from teaching, and eventually he gets annoyed and strikes that guy blind. He doesn't do that here but wanting to keep the focus on his ability to preach in the name of Jesus. So they're thrown in jail because then the people get mad and they're like, oh, we use this spirit to make money and, and now they can't do that anymore. And so they stir up the authorities against them. They're thrown in jail. And eventually, of course, right, there's the, the miraculous event in jail, the supernatural thing, the, the doors all open, the earthquake, and, and everybody's, everybody's is able to get out, but they don't. They don't get out. The jailer thinks, oh man, I've let all these prisoners escape. I'm going to be put to death. He's about to kill himself. And Paul calls out, no, don't do that. And then, of course, he asked, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16, 34, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. He went to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced the household that he had believed in God. Again, what are we seeing the emphasis here? Teaching, yes, the importance of teaching. But then the personal connection. It's not like he just teaches him in the jail and then he's done and he moves on. He brings him to his house. Gives them a meal. Develops this relationship with Paul and Silas and this jailer. And not just the jailer, but his entire house. Lydia did the same thing, right? Wasn't Lydia? She did the same thing. She converted. Come stay with me. If I'm faithful, come stay with me. Here, the jailer doing a similar thing. Now, of course, they have to go back to jail because they're in jail. And now a lot of things go details, right? But eventually the, the city people, the city officials, they're like, oh, we got to let these guys go. They're Roman citizens. We can't have them here. And Paul has none of that. 
Paul's like, you put us in jail for a bad reason. If you want us to leave, you have to come apologize publicly. Acts 16, 38 through 40. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Remember, what is Philippi? It said at the beginning, Philippi, uh, Philippi was a Roman colony subject to Roman laws, subject to very particular Roman laws, one of which was were deserving of a trial, which they did not do. They just threw them in jail. So they came and apologized to them. And when they took them out of jail, that is, and asked them to leave the city, so they went visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. A couple of things to note about the stay in Philippi. Both Lydia and the jailer emphasized the inviting of them into their homes to build, again, this relationship. There's an emphasis of connection. Another emphasis is the emphasis on immersion, the baptism of Lydia and, his, and the jailer and his household, the conversion that uh, is accompanied by Immersion into Christ, baptism in water. Then they visit Lydia and the Christians on their way out of town. Hey, the magistrates bring them out. You need to leave now. They don't just leave immediately. What do they do? They go back to visit Lydia and it says the brothers, the other Christians are there to spend more time with them on their way out. We got to leave. We're going to make this, we have this personal connection. We need to say bye. We need, we can't just get out of here. We need to, to, to encourage. And I think it's what it said specifically, right, in the text and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. Well, why would they need encouragement? Because they've built this relationship. They can't just leave without saying goodbye because of the connection that they had. Remember, they stayed some days. It says, Luke says in 1612, that they stayed some days. They were, they were not just sort of there for a, uh, like a weekend and then leave. They were there for a prolonged period of time. Now, to note, before we get into the letter to the Philippians... This takes place around 50-ish A.D. Uh, the, the letter to the Philippians written in the early 60s. So we're looking at a decade or more afterwards. And the letter is written from Paul's imprisonment. As he says that he is in prison several times throughout the letter. Under house arrest probably in Rome. And how that affects his connection to the Philippians. Philippians 1, 3 through 6. I thank God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the good work, that was in Acts 16. That was the beginning of their good work. He stays with them, he talks to them, he converts some of them. And presumably, after he leaves Philippi, they continue to be faithful and to teach and to preach and to fellowship and to encourage one another. Lydia and the Philippian jailer, it's very unlikely they would have ever met. But I guarantee you they met after each of them was converted. As they are fellowshipping together now, this new connection that they have. And Paul's what? He's sure that he who began a good work, that is God, will continue and bring it to completion, to fulfillment that they will remain faithful, despite the fact that he's not there, despite the fact that he can't be there, because he's in jail, he's in house arrest, despite the fact that he cannot be with him, he is confident that they will remain faithful. 
And so even though the letter is, it says from Paul and Timothy at the beginning, the primary pronoun of the letter is the singular I. You'll see this throughout the letter as we go through the, the book, that the, the switch from it is Paul and Timothy. Timothy's probably involved in either the writing or the distribution. Remember, Paul's in, in, he can't just, he's not free. So the letter has to get there somehow. Maybe Timothy is the one that is distributing the letter to the Philippians. But the singular pronoun is, is going to be most common. This is a very personal letter from Paul to the Philippians, being written from imprisonment. And again, as we think about how this affects our understanding, the connection that he shares with them is going to be a great source of comfort to him in his imprisonment as he remembers and thinks about the things that they did together and the, the conversions that were made and the fellowship that they had as he's remembering these things in large part so that he can continue to encourage them even though he's the one that maybe needs encouragement. One of the main themes of this letter is his joy in his situation. Paul's continual joy in part, not entirely, but in part because of his relationship with the Philippians. He's, again, imprisoned, in house arrest, can't go anywhere he wants. He's just sort of stuck there. And yet he still has joy, in part because of his connection with the Philippians. Uh, 1, 7 through 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with, of, with me of grace. I want to note a couple of words that he's used already that you are partners with me and you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. One of the things I want to note in this introductory letter to the Philippians, the New Testament is not an instruction manual, though there are instructions in it. It is composed of personal correspondence. Paul was personally connected because he had invested in them. This letter to the Philippians exists because Paul had previously made a connection with the Philippians and he wanted to continue to encourage and support them. There are instructions in the New Testament, but they are more significant when we remember this personal connection. This is not some impersonal manual for living. This is a person who endured a lot of difficulty and hardship, who has converted a lot of these people, who has taught a lot of these people, who wants them to continue to remain faithful. The impetus of this book is not some clinical The impetus of Philippians is a desire for the audience, a love for the audience, the recipients of the letter. And in a more general sense, that is the impetus for all of the Bible. We could talk about specifically the New Testament, but in more general, all of the Bible is driven by its giver's love for those who have received it. Not talking about the human authors, although that is the case, but of course God, who has given us his word, not out of clinical detachment, but has given us his word because of his love for us as we see this as a sort of a microcosm in Philippians of a much deeper, greater truth. First Kings exists in large part because God loves his people and wants us to understand the things that are in First Kings. There's important for that. Philippians, similarly. It's important for us to understand Philippians because these things come from God who loves us. 
And so, as we think about the other congregations, eventually us, but in the first century, other congregations, they're reading this letter, right? It goes to the Philippians, and then they eventually make copies of it, and they give it to other people, and things get distributed. We've been talking about this in our Wednesday night class. How are we supposed to, what are we supposed to learn from this greeting to the Philippians? If you're a different congregation in the first century, this, you're like, oh, that's great. He's so connected to the Philippians, but what, are, what am I supposed to learn from that? What are we supposed to learn from this? Twice, emphasizes that the Philippians were not mere bystanders in his work. 1, 5, and 7, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day of t- until now, for you are all partakers with grace. Those who are taught the truth of God's message at some point become active participants in the living out and teaching of that message. It's interesting to me. God could have some way, I'm sure, done it differently. But the way that he has orchestrated and and constructed Christianity, it can't be done alone. It just physically, literally can't be done alone. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because of the idea of baptism, which, again, he emphasizes twice in this story in Acts 16, the idea of being baptized is not something you do for yourself. It it fundamentally requires another human to do that for us. Christianity is constructed in... It must be a group activity. Some decade later, we're partakers, partners in the gospel from the beginning, but they continued to be invested in the work that Paul was doing. Even when Paul was in Thessalonica or Berea or wherever he was, maybe they were thinking directly about the Philippians. They were still doing part of the same thing that Paul was doing. Giving glory to God, building the church, establishing his kingdom. We do that too. 2,000 years later, in a very real sense, we are still partners with Paul. Not just Paul. Partners with Timothy and Epaphras. Partners with John and Peter. Partners with any Christian that has ever lived. We are participating in the same thing together. And as a result, we are partakers of the same grace. The same benefit. The same glorious result. That we are all together in this. Even in the depths of difficulty, we can and should be thinking about one another. Paul, again, is the one imprisoned. And yet he's thinking about and praying for and giving instruction to others. If he could do that, what about us as we think about in the midst of our difficulties? Do we have the ability, do we have the willingness in our struggles to continue to think about the interests of others? He's going to say it in Philippians 2. We'll read it when we get to that. That we look out for the interests of others. He is demonstrating that in a very real way. Yeah, I'm the one in jail, but I'm still thinking about how can I encourage you? We must consider, as we conclude, how we feel about our fellow Christians. How did Paul feel about the Philippians? 1-4, all prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, verse 7, because I hold you in my heart. 1-8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Number one, do we feel joy when we think about one another? It's a simple question. Complicated sometimes, right? Because, man, we can be mean to each other, can't we? We make mistakes and we're doofuses. You probably think, oh, that Chris, I can't believe he said that thing. 
I hope that at some point, though, as we're considering one another, we're feeling joy. That we're in this together, that we have fellowship, that when I think about you, there should be joy because you're a Christian with me, that you're participating with me. And I hope you can feel that way about me and about each other as you consider. Again, stop looking at me. Look at each other for a minute. Just look at each other. You're not doing it. You're looking at me still. Look at each other. Do you feel joy when you think about one another? How often? Okay, we can think about maybe we have joy. Maybe we just don't think about each other at all. How often during the week? Now you're here, you're forced to be with each other now. You can't get around it because here we are. But during the week, how often do you think about your fellow Christians? Do you even think about your fellow? Again, I want to make the point. Paul's jail. He's got a lot of his own problems. Yet he still is taking time to try to encourage, to think about, to pray for the Philippians. How often do you pray for your fellow Christians? For the struggles they have. We publish the bulletin every week. We have the calendar every month. Long list of things that you could be thinking about and praying for your fellow Christians. Maybe it's not in the bulletin or the calendar. Maybe it's just because we have connection. What is going to be required for me to think about you during the week is what? Connection with you. That I've developed some relationship with you. Finally. Do you even want to be together? Maybe we don't think about one another. Maybe we don't have joy when we think about one another. Because we just don't care about being together. I hope that's not the case. As you consider the church here, the congregation here, but not just here, the congregations throughout the world. If we aren't willing to invest in personal connections with each other, then what is it? And what will happen when difficulty comes. Not if, when difficulty comes. Hopefully, we rely on each other. Hopefully, we think about and pray for one another. Hopefully, as we conclude the invitation. You think about Lydia. You think about the jailer. Taught the gospel. Taught the way of Christ. We could do that today, right? We have water. Here it is. If you want to be immersed into Christ, we could do that. Maybe it's... Not that. Maybe you've already become a Christian, but you need some comfort or encouragement. You need some prayer. We want to do that too, right? That's what we see in Philippians 1. The desire to encourage and support one another. Maybe that's your need. Whatever it is, come. Stand and sing.